out of our chronology uh, this morning and, and do a special study, uh, given the day is Palm Sunday, and uh, we'll pick things up in Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. Boy, it's good to be with you again. This is terrific. My head is mush, but it it take a week or so to get that going again, uh, such as it is. It's already a C minus, but we're working on it. So Luke chapter 19, we'll begin in verse 28 after we find a second place in the Scriptures that we want to read this morning, and that's in Daniel chapter 9. So we want to go into the Old Testament. If you've got a Bible that doesn't have a gigantic concordance, typically you can open the Bible up right in the middle and you'll hit the Psalms. And then just go to the right, you'll hit Isaiah, and then Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel, and then the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. So hit the Psalms and go right. I've got mine already marked ahead of time, so I'm dealing with pride a little bit up here in front. All right, Luke 19, verse 28. And when he, that is Jesus, had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where you, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. And so those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And then as he was now drawing near the descent, of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones themselves would immediately cry out. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because... You did not know the time of your visitation. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. Now, as I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, Daniel said, the man, and really an angel Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision in the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me, and he talked with me, and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. 
At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make the end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy, that is, the Messiah. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven sevens or seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end of it shall be with a flood till the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he will confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Old Testament, for New Testament, and a chance to study it today. And as always, as we turn to your word this morning, Lord, we realize that there are thoughts and intents of yours behind your word. There are things that you want your word to accomplish in our lives, things that you know that we need it to accomplish in our lives to be successful as your servants and pilgrims in this world. And so we pray, Lord, for a work of your Holy Spirit in this room and in each one of our hearts to open up this passage to us and to have it do what you know it needs to do in us and in our spirits. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The events described in these verses took place on the Sunday immediately prior to Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins, his burial and his resurrection from the dead three days later. And this Sunday that is where these events took place and this Sunday that we're in the middle of right now, the week prior to his, his crucifixion and his burial and his resurrection is known as Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus made his triumphal entry as the Messiah into the city of Jerusalem over 2,000, uh, almost 2,000 years ago. Now, Palm Sunday is very, very significant to each of us here today, not simply because it was the Sunday prior to Jesus' crucifixion, but because of the remarkable events concerning Jesus' life and ministry that took place on that day. Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago was utterly unique in human history, and it was designed by God to be utterly unique in human history and to impact the faith of the people that witnessed it 2,000 years ago and to impact our faith today and everyone in human history. Notice first the events of that day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, verses 35 through 38, is a very, very joyous experience and occasion. And you can almost feel yourself there if you have the ability to read something and kind of put yourself in the middle of it. I mean, it, a beautiful spring day in Jerusalem. 
He's riding on a donkey. He crests the Mount of Olives uh, from the eastern side, coming from the, the city uh, direction of, of Bethany. And as he crests that Mount of Olives there on the east of Jerusalem, he begins the, his descent on that donkey down into the Kidron Valley, and he enters into the city of Jerusalem from the east. And all of this was exactly as the prophet Zechariah had prophesied it would be true of the Messiah hundreds of years prior to Jesus fulfilling it. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 declared, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And along the way, we're told in this passage, a great multitude gathered together to greet Jesus as he made his triumphal entry. We're told that it was a multitude here. Multitude's big enough for me, but Matthew's gospel tells us that it was a great multitude. Here we're told that they laid their robes down on the road before Jesus as he made his way into the city. Matthew's gospel tells us that they also laid palm branches down before him, and, and thus we have the name for the Sunday, Palm Sunday. The people are absolutely excited. I mean, they're shouting. It's a huge crowd, and, and they're praising God, and spontaneously, unrehearsed, they begin to shout out portions of the messianic psalms to Jesus. They begin to sing them and pronounce them to him. And it was their confession of their heart and recognition that Jesus was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, that he was the long-awaited Messiah that had been promised by God. And so the scene is you have to, to fully appreciate what comes next. is a scene of just uninterrupted joy, spontaneous bubbling out of people who love God, joy. The people are so excited. You can kind of imagine it and put yourself in the middle of that crowd. Now, not everybody is excited. In verse 39, we're told that the religious leaders of the Jews, specifically the Pharisees, they immediately protest over what it is that they're seeing and what it is that they're hearing. And so they cry out to the Lord. They recognize that this multitude is declaring Jesus to be the promised Messiah, and Jesus is doing nothing to deter them from acknowledging Him as the Messiah, nothing to stop them from praising Him. And, and uh, so they're asking Jesus. They protest. They want Jesus to correct uh, this assessment of the crowd of Him as the Messiah. So they demand that He rebukes the dis these disciples. Jesus' response in verse 40 is an interesting one, and in essence, he declares it would do no good to attempt to silence them, because if this crowd were silenced, if this crowd did not sing out these messianic psalms to Jesus on that day, Jesus declared that then even the stones would cry out these messianic psalms. These psalms had been written in the Old Testament for this very day to be sung to this very one. And if human lips did not ascribe this greatness and this praise to Jesus, then Jesus said in fulfillment of these psalms, then the very stones themselves would become a choir. 
to cry out these praises to him. And, the, and so that's what the people were doing as they were singing the Messianic Psalms and very specifically Psalm 118, uh, crying out, Save now, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, as we continue reading, you'd think that the whole thing would kind of stop there. There was his triumphal entry. It was one of the greatest days in human history. And and uh, let's all head out for the rest of the day, and our, our heart is warmed by that. And I mean duly warmed by that. And it would have been beautiful if the passage had kind of ended there, but it didn't end there. As we continue reading, just a few minutes later, all of that joy gives way to weeping. And in verse 41, Jesus begins to weep over Jerusalem. It's only one of two places in the entire Bible, entire record of Jesus' public ministry, that we find him weeping. First time we find him weeping is in at the a graveyard in the region of Bethany where his good friend by the name of Lazarus had been buried. And Jesus wept in that scene of a graveyard, and he wept over the very existence of death in the human condition. And the word that's used for Jesus there as he weeps is to weep silently. So the tears just, where a person just weeps and you wouldn't know that they're weeping unless you looked over and you saw them weeping. No involvement of their body, just their eyes, what's going on inside, the tears dripping down his face onto his robe, down the dirt below him. That's how he wept. That's not the word that's used for how he wept here. The word that is used for his weeping here means to bewail. It means to sob convulsively. It speaks of a weeping, and I trust all of us have done it at one time or another in our life, where the weeping begins to rack your entire body. It involves your shoulders, and your whole body is engaged in it, and, and it just has taken over. And so the sobbing, the body is shaking, and that's the kind of weeping that Jesus is doing over Jerusalem at this time. Now, weeping is an interesting thing because weeping is an expression of a sorrow that the heart can no longer contain internally. And we can contain a lot of sorrow in our hearts, can't we? And never allow it to express itself in tears. But tears come when the body and the heart can't contain it in an unconcealed kind of, in a concealed kind of fashion any longer. And so here something is breaking Jesus' heart, is producing a sorrow in him that he not only cannot keep contained within him, but he can't even con keep contained in kind of the place of weeping silently and in a, uh, with tears just dripping down. This sorrow grabs a hold of the entirety of his being. And he begins to shake and, and, and weep with his whole body in, engaged over uh, the city of Jerusalem. There's something about this scene now that really breaks his heart. Why is his heart so broken in the midst of such a wonderful scene of joy? And the reason is clearly given first in verse 42 and then in verse 44. And in verse, the words of verse 42 we're told that he wept because Jerusalem and basically the nation of Israel in general did not know, in Jesus' words, this 
your day. In the words of verse 44, Jesus wept because they did not know the time of their visitation, the time in which the Messiah would come to them. In general, the population of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was the self-proclaimed you know, center of Bible learning and Bible knowledge and studies and all of these things. In general, the population of Jerusalem did not know the time of the coming of their Messiah. But still you look at it and say, well, what is that all about? What is, what is Jesus really saying behind all of that? Over and over again in Jesus' ministry, as the common people heard him gladly, he was very popular among the common people. The religious leaders, that was another story. Uh, they, they were not fans of Jesus to, in the slightest. But the, the common people heard him gladly. They loved Jesus. And each time, frequently in Jesus' public ministry, as he would do some miracle, as he would do some teaching, as he would give them uh, the kind of attention that he did, the common people would rise up and they would want to proclaim him to be the king and, and take him by force and make him the king of, of Israel. And, and so this was something that they were continually doing. And over and over again as we read the Gospels, Jesus would not allow it to happen. And he would stop their attempt to make him king with the same words over and over again. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. His time is not yet come. Always deflecting this attempt because it was the wrong timing. And yet on this day, he allows the people to declare him the king, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Why did he refuse that so many times in his public ministry previously, but allow them to declare him to be the Messiah as he made this entrance into Jerusalem on this day? What made this day different from all of these other days? What, it made, di what made this day different is recorded in Daniel chapter 9. And I'd like you to turn back to there. Hopefully you saved your place. I forgot to tell you that. But in Daniel chapter 9, the angel Gabriel came to Daniel, the prophet, in order to declare to him the future of the nation of Israel and Jerusalem. He tells him in verse 24, for your people, and who was Daniel's people? The Jews, and for your holy city, and what was their holy city? The city of Jerusalem. And Gabriel declared there that one day righteousness would mock the nation of Israel and the world, that rebellion will cease, that there will be an end of sin, that reconciliation will be made for sin, that everlasting righteousness will be brought in. In other words, God's kingdom will be established, that all of the Old Testament visions and prophecies will be fulfilled, that the Holy of Holies, the temple, will be anointed and consecrated in Jerusalem, and that it will not be a smooth road, but it will be a rocky road full of surprises, but that it will happen. Then notice in verse 25, in the early part of verse 26, Gabriel's revelation concerning the coming Messiah, he declares him, describes him as Messiah the Prince, and he said in essence to Daniel, Daniel, one day there's 
going to be a decree that is going to be given to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. And at the time that he was speaking to Daniel here, the city of Jerusalem lay in ruins. This rebuilding of the city, he says in verse 25, will also include the rebuilding of the street and the wall, and that is significant. The rebuilding, this rebuilding of the city, its town square, and the wall, that is its outer defense, he says in verse 25, it won't be easy. There'll be great opposition to it, but it will be done even in troublesome times. He says very significantly then that from that day, the day that that decree is given to rebuild Jerusalem and its outer defense, its wall, from that day the decree is given until the coming of Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That is, uh, it will occur after 69 weeks, and it's literally 69 sevens. It's very unsatisfactory, and I I don't like it about the King James or the New King James translating of Daniel chapter 9 because the word that is used there for weeks in the Hebrew is literally sevens. They interpret it to be weeks. It's not talking about, we think of weeks as in a sense of a block of a, a, a certain amount of time, but that's not what the angel was saying to Daniel. He was saying 69 sevens are determined for your people. And, and so it, it really is sevens in the Hebrew. Now, the 69 sevens that uh, the angel Gabriel is talking about here is considered to be years by virtually all scholars that study the passage. And there's a good reason for that. Because at the time that Gabriel gives this prophecy to Daniel, Daniel is contemplating the prophecy of Jeremiah who prophesied that the Jews would be in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. So if we understand it, and, and it's correct to do so, that this 69 sevens refers to a block of years, we then take the 69 years times the seven years, and we uh, come to 483 years. If you take those 483 years and you multiply it times 360, because that was the number of days in the Babylonian calendar, the period of time in which Gabriel brought this prophecy to Daniel here. So if you, if you do it against that Babylonian calendar, you come up with 173,880 days. And so what the Lord was communicating to Daniel and to the whole world that would read the book of Daniel is that from the day that a decree went out to rebuild Jerusalem, including its wall, you could pull out a calendar, start marking days, and 173,880 days later, from the time that decree was issued, then Messiah the Prince would be revealed to Israel. So the critical question becomes, when's the date that you start counting it from? You start to search through the Old Testament and try to find a place. Where was the place in the Old Testament where some king made a decree for the city of Jerusalem after its destruction to be rebuilt, and not just the city to be rebuilt, but also its outer defense, its walls. And as you look through the Old Testament, in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, in chapter 2 of that book, there's a king by the name of King Artaxerxes 
who gave a decree to Nehemiah to not only restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, but very specifically told him that he was to rebuild its wall. And the timing of that, it were told in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, it came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now, King Artaxerxes, we'll be taking a test on this in a moment. Trust me, I wouldn't be laying this foundation if it weren't important. So some of you feel like you're back in a class that you disliked in high school. Um, it has a happy ending. King Artaxerxes started his reign in 445 B.C., and so the 20th year, or four, I'm sorry, 465 B.C., so the 20th year of his reign was 445 B.C. When it, it, when it talks about the month of Nisan in the Scriptures and no specific day is given to that month, then it's always a reference to the first day of that month. And so the, uh, the record here is speaking of the first day of the month of Nisan. And so the first day of Nisan in 445 B.C. was March 14th, 445 B.C. And if you add, pull out a calendar, add 173,880 days from that date, mark your way right through human history, you give account for leap years, you give account for the transition of time between, uh, you know, the uh, B.C. and A.D. and all of that that occurred, and you come to Mar April 6, 32 A.D., the very day that Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. It's amazing that God had given the children of Israel the very day of the coming of their Messiah, the Prince. That's why he said, this your day. But overall, the entire country and the entire city of Jerusalem was completely ignorant of the Scriptures and completely ignorant of the time of their visitation. Gabriel goes on to declare to Daniel that following the coming of Messiah the Prince, that the Messiah would not establish his physical kingdom at that time, but that he would be cut off, he would be killed. It was unthinkable in the Jewish mind that the Messiah could come into the world and not be recognized by the Jews. It was doubly unthinkable to the religious Jew that Messiah could come into the world and end up killed, and yet it was prophesied by one of their prophets, by Daniel there. And even as, as it was prophesied and recorded in Daniel by the angel Gabriel, Jesus was crucified four days later following his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Gabriel further declares that the Messiah in his death would not die for himself, but that he would die for the sins of others. We read in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, Surely he, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. They thought that he had been smitten for his own sin, but he was wounded for our transgressions, not his own. He was buried, bruised rather, for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. And he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. The angel Gabriel gave Daniel a perfect description of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem and his crucifixion a few days later in 528 B.C., 550 years before the event occurred. One of the interesting things about the prophecy given concerning the coming Messiah in Daniel chapter 9 is that it is a time-sensitive prophecy. No one can fulfill it today. No one can come on the scene at this point in human history and do so with biblical credentials and declare themselves to Jew or Gentile to be the promised Messiah because they cannot meet the criteria and the standard of Daniel chapter 9. They would be 2,000 years late. Translation if Jesus is not the Messiah, no one is the Messiah. But Jesus is the Messiah, and he is the Savior of the world. In verse 26, it goes on to describe the destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the Roman general Titus in 70 A.D. And so it happened through Titus and following the rebellion of the Jews against the Roman Empire. And then the 70th seven that's spoken of, a, 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 its individual block of, of seven years spoken of in verse 27 has an identity that's distinct from the other 69 and it speaks of a period, seven-year period known as the tribulation period and a time of Jacob's trouble speaking of a time where God once again deals with the Jews during which the Antichrist will rise up, commit the abomination that causes desolation, where he will allow the Jews to rebuild their temple, and then at the three-and-a-half-year mark of the Great Tribulation period, he will walk into the Holy of Holies, he will stop the sacrifices, he will stop all of the worship of the Lord, and he will set himself up in the Holy of Holies and demand to be worshipped. He will defile that temple. He will make it an abomination and will cause the Jews then to flee in recognition of the fact that they have attached their hopes to the wrong Messiah, that indeed they have attached them to the Antichrist. And, and so all of this, this uh, Jesus spoke later of this abomination which causes desolation spoken of by Daniel. Jesus spoke of it at his time as being a future event. And so at the end of this, a uh, seven-year period of, of great tribulation, Jesus returns and he establishes the kingdom of age and then all of the things that are described there in verse 24 will mark the whole world and I say hip, hip, hooray. Now, because this passage so perfectly identifies Jesus as the Christ, it creates a great problem for specifically Jews, but it creates a great problem for anyone that wants to reject Jesus as the promised Messiah because he's the only one who fulfilled that passage. 
So what does a person do with that today? Well, one of the things that some Jewish rabbis do is they attempt to date this prophecy from, uh, to King Cyrus's decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and that's recorded in Ezra chapter 1. The problem with that is that what Gabriel says here has nothing to do with the temple. It is a decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the wall, and that's specifically mentioned in that prophecy that Gabriel gives, and only Artaxerxes gave that decree. And so it's a deliberate attempt to ignore the obvious related to this prophecy, and that is that Jesus is the promised Messiah according to the Scriptures. Now, Daniel's prophecy concerning the coming of Messiah is simply amazing in its complexity here and in its detail in, in, in chapter 9. And Jesus' fulfillment of it is really nothing less than stunning. This faith that we have in Jesus is the promised Messiah. It's not an unreasonable faith. It's a reasonable faith. It's based upon the Scriptures. It's based upon the prophecies of God, where God has given us history in advance so that when these events occur, we can recognize that only God could have done that, and only God did do that. And you take and you look at the Apostle Paul as he, in the book of Acts, goes into city after city after city after city and goes to the Jew first and then to the Greek, to the Gentile. But what did he do when he made an appeal to both Jew and Gentile to put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah? He did not make an emotional appeal to them. We are told over and over again that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He wanted them to have a reasoned faith, a reasonable faith, based upon the surest thing in all of the world. That is the Word of God. And, and so amazing, this prophecy that was given. I think that there are few things that I have ever witnessed in life that is more powerful to witness than to watch a grown man weep. You watch the circumstances of life, a loss that occurs, a, a disappointment, some circumstance that has reversed in a gigantic way that they couldn't see coming. And as the news of all of this hits their heart, it, they can't contain it in their heart. If you've ever seen a grown man, a strong man, break down and begin to cry in a way that it begins to rack his whole body, I mean, it's really an awesome, it's just, what do you say in the faith, when you're in the presence of that? You watch it and you pray for the person. Go put your arm around him. But it's, a, it's an awesome thing to witness. And here we have God himself weeping. And as I read the passage, I feel badly for Jesus. And I ask myself, what has happened here that has spoiled this day for him? It should have been the greatest day in his life and ministry. It should have been one of the greatest days in human history. And yet, 
it's turned into this weeping in the middle of it. And the reasons for the weeping are given us in the passage. He wept over the general unbelief of the nation of Israel despite Daniel's revelation of the day of his coming. I mean, what more could God do for us than to give us the very day of the coming of Messiah? Many believed in him, but many more rejected him. He wept over the pride and the hard-heartedness of those Jewish religious leaders. When God finally sends his Messiah, they decide they don't like the one that he sent. And so they rejected him, plotted his death, and played an instrumental part in his crucifixion. He wept over the willful ignorance and indifference of the larger population of Jerusalem to his coming. They're too busy making money and getting ahead in the daily of life and all these things to give any time to God. And he also wept because of the destruction that he knew was coming in the immediate future to Jerusalem. And he looked at that beautiful city and he declared to all that were listening that it would one day be destroyed. And he told that crowd that they were working for homes, working for material things in Jerusalem. And Jesus knew that those things and the city itself were going to be destroyed within their lifetimes. They saw this glorious, beautiful, you know, city, and, and it's going to go on forever and ever, the great Jerusalem. Jesus knew that within 40 years, terrible battle would be fought there. More than a million Jews would lose their lives in that city. As the Roman general Titus came with six or seven legions of, arm, uh, of Roman armies, came and encircled the city and, and ultimately destroyed the city. And Jesus is saying, all that you have missed me for is one day going to be destroyed. It's doomed. <laughs> it's doomed. You have missed God to try and gain a peace of what is doomed. And how many people reject him yet today because in their pride, they don't like the Messiah that God sent. They don't like some aspect of his teaching or some aspect of his life. Or how many reject him because they're willfully ignorant of the Scriptures? Bibles everywhere in the United States of America. It's a great responsibility to have that many Bibles, and yet to never open a Bible and to learn the things that God, this isn't something, a book that I wrote. This is a book from God to man and never giving it even five minutes of time to see what God is trying to say to us. The willing ignorance of the Scriptures that testify to Jesus as the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. And the same indifference toward Jesus exists today as it did 2,000 years ago. People too busy getting ahead, making a name for themselves, making a place in a world that God has said what is true of this world, was, what was true of Jerusalem is as true of this world. It's all doomed. It's all set aside one day for destruction. And Jesus spoke of the terrible price, verse 43 and 44, 
that they would pay for their unbelief, the consequences of failing to know the time of their visitation, the destruction of the city, and it was destroyed, as I said, by Rome. As the children of Israel, in rejecting Christ, then began to follow other messiahs who led them in a rebellion, a tragic rebellion against Rome, and a terrible, terrible bloodshed. And when that 70 A.D., when Rome finally put down the Jewish rebellion in the city of Jerusalem, the slaughter was just terrible, Josephus writes about it, just gruesome and, and very, very complete. And what breaks Jesus' heart is that all of it was so unnecessary all of it could have been so easily avoided. The entire history of the Jews could have been different if they had only recognized him as their Messiah on that day, made him their king, and followed him. Think about how different Jewish history would be if in 32 A.D., in the light of the weight of the Old Testament prophecies. They had acknowledged Jesus as their true Messiah and followed him. Think about how different human history would be. So much hung in the balance related to that one decision. And this prophecy in Daniel is given to us so that each of us will make Jesus our Savior and in doing so find peace with God. That's what Jesus said there in, in Luke's gospel, chapter 19. He said, if you had known even this, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. That's what God wanted to bring to them. He wanted to bring peace to their, uh, to their lives. And, and so the, this prophecy is given in Daniel so that we, we can't make the decisions for people 2,000 years ago, but so that we can look at this history, Jesus' commentary on it, and make Jesus our Savior and find in doing so peace with God. And that's what Jesus has come to do for us. The book of Romans, it says, having therefore been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How valuable is peace with God? All you have to do is fight a war against them, rebellion against them for some period of life, to then one day prize what it means to wake up each morning, to go to bed each night, and to know I am at peace with God because I have put my faith in His promised Savior. And concerning recognizing Jesus as our Savior, we don't have to wait for a certain day. We don't have to wait 173,880 days. We can do that today. Today will do just fine. As Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he said, today's the day of salvation. Today is the appointed time. And the reason that today is the day to get saved, if you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, is because today is all you've got. You don't have tomorrow. You don't have next week. You don't have next year. You don't have old age as a promise. And when we're young, we think we'll get to that age. You have to, all you have to do is live a little while to realize not everyone reaches old age in this world. Today is the day to become saved by putting my faith in Christ, gaining peace with God 
and entering into a relationship with God Almighty today, the very thing we've been created for. And God does not call you or me to a blind faith, to even supremely an emotional faith, but He calls us to a reasoned faith, a reasonable faith, again, based upon the surest thing that exists in this world, and that is the Word of God. Several years ago, a Christian friend and I were talking, and he shared a dream that he had dreamed concerning the white throne judgment of God. That's that final judgment spoken of in the book of Revelation that's going to be overseen by Jesus, where anyone whose name is not written in the book of life will be cast into eternal judgment. And in his dream, he said, I saw Jesus presiding over that judgment, and he was weeping as he executed that judgment. And I tell you, I don't know whether that will be so, but in the light of this passage, I do not doubt its possibility. Will he weep or rejoice over your choice concerning him? Allow him to rejoice by trusting in Jesus as your Savior today so that your name will be written this morning in that Lamb's book of life by turning from your old ways. That's called repentance, having a change of mind about the direction that you're going in life, putting your trust for the forgiveness of your sins and Jesus' death upon the cross and his burial and his resurrection the third day, and then inviting Jesus to come inside of your heart and when you do that, His Holy Spirit will come inside of you and begin a relationship with Him. It's a miracle. It'll happen all over the world today. Why not in your heart today? And it's a free gift. It's all there for the asking, and it's all there for the receiving. There will be men and women up here in front after the service, and they'll have a badge on that says prayer, so you can identify them easily, and they'd love to pray with you to put your faith in Christ this morning and begin a relationship with God this morning and then to give you a Bible and some literature to help you get started in that walk and relationship with Him. If you come here this morning and you have other needs in your life already saved, you say, but I, I want someone to pray for me related to these needs, these same men and women would love to pray with you and to pray for you. Now is the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation.